33. Again, let's read together from the Gospel of John, chapter 16, verse 33. In this verse, our Lord Jesus Christ is speaking to his disciples and telling them the following. John 16, 33. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Let's please pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, we praise you for your goodness, for your mercy, for your love, for your grace. You are great, you are wonderful, you are a good shepherd. We praise you for that. You are the only true God. Thank you for your inspiration. For your inspired word, which is lamp to our feet and light to our path, that is able to teach us, to train us, to equip, to equip us for righteousness and good word. Holy Spirit, I ask that you use your word today, confirm us more toward Christ. Prepare our hearts to receive it, to believe it, to practice it, to live by your truth. Let your holy word today be explained with clarity and understanding, with power. I ask you all of this in the precious and holy name of Jesus Christ. Amen. The peace of Christ, the peace of Christ, trusting Jesus in the midst of affliction, that's going to be the title of what I'm going to tell you today, and that's what I want us to think about. In John 16.33, we see the final words that Jesus told his disciples in what has been named by theologians at the farewell discourse. And in this farewell discourse, this happened right after Jesus Christ celebrated the Last Supper with his disciples in the city of Jerusalem. And right before the day he was crucified. And he was talking in here to 11 of his disciples. Judas was not there because Judas was in his way to talk with the Pharisees and to betray Jesus, to consummate that betrayal that night. And that's what happened later that same night after Judas betrayed Jesus, 
with a kiss. Jesus was arrested, Jesus was beaten, and he was tortured for us. The verse starts with the words, I have said these things to you. I have said these things to you. Jesus has said several things to his disciples that night. And that's what is named the farewell discourse. All the way from John 13 to John 16.33. Right after this last word in John 16.33, we see what is named as the priestly, the priestly prayer of Jesus. He prayed for his disciples and for Actually, all of us, this prayer also includes us. He prayed for us that night. And it is evident in the context that precedes this verse that the disciples were troubled. The disciples were anxious. The disciples were afraid. Jesus, after the Last Supper, I mean, they listened to Jesus after the Last Supper telling them in John 13, 33, Jesus told them, little children, yet a little while I am with you, but you will seek me. So now I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. Where I am going, you cannot come. And just after Jesus told them these words, we can see the anxiety in the disciples when they, when they realized that their master that they have been following for three years and a half, they have been following him for, for three years, more than three years, and they realized that their master Jesus, whom they have never been separated from since they were called to follow him, is now telling them that he is living. How can that be? I understand the anxiousness in them when they heard that Jesus is living. And Peter, the Apostle Peter, anxiously asked Jesus in John 13, 36 and 37, Lord, where are you going? Lord, why can I not follow you now? That was Peter to Jesus when he heard those words. Our Lord Jesus, who knows everything, knew his disciples were stressed out when they heard these choking words, that he is living to a place they cannot come. A place they cannot come yet. At that time. And our Lord Jesus, in order to bring comfort to these distressed and anxious disciples, he tells them in John 14, 1, Jesus, seen how they were, when he told them that he is living, then he tells them, let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. That he is going to prepare a place for them. Jesus told them, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And he tells them that he will come again and take them with him. So where I am, you may be also. So he tells them he is leaving, but then he tells them that where he's going, he's going to have to prepare a place for them, and that he's going to come back again and bring them with him. 
And now Jesus is about to go, he's about to be arrested, he's about to be crucified. And rise again three days after that crucifixion. And ascend into heaven 14 days after that resurrection. So Jesus told his disciples other things, many things. He also told them things that would prepare them for the trials and tribulations and persecutions that would continue after Jesus' crucifixion. For example, in John 16, 32, Jesus told them, The hour is coming indeed. The hour is coming. Indeed it has come when you will be scattered. And in John 15, 18, Jesus told them, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before you. Christ also told them that he will not let them orphans. He will not let them orphans. I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper, which is the Holy Spirit, to be with you forever. He will not let the disciples orphans. He promised them that after he goes, he will give them the Holy Spirit that's going to be with them forever, that's going to be with the church forever, and that is actually with us now, and it will be with the church forever. And among other things, brothers and sisters, these are things that Jesus said to his disciples in this farewell discourse. Now, let's go back to John 16.33. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. This is actually the second point I want to make to you today. That in me you may have peace. The Greek word for peace used by the Apostle John in the original gospel was eirene, which in addition to peace also means one, harmony, quietness, tranquility, rest, all of that. And this Greek word Irene derived from the primary Greek verb hydro, which means to join, tied together into a whole, wholeness. And in this regard, then, peace is God's gift of wholeness in Christ. But I want, I want you to notice what the verse says that are the two most important words, the two most important words of this verse for me. In me. That in me, you may have peace. Christ says, in me. So, dear brothers and sisters, that kind of peace only comes from being in Christ. This kind of peace only comes from our union with Christ, for being tied together with Christ. Absence of Christ in the lives of the people is emptiness and lack of peace. Christ in the life of people is 
wholeness and peace. God gave his peace to his children, regardless of the circumstances and trials they might be facing in this world. It's a peace that is not dependent upon what we have or where we live or if we are healthy or sick or if anything. It's a peace that is not dependent of any circumstances of this world. And this type of peace is a gift from the Holy Spirit. It's a fruit of the Spirit. As we see in Galatians 5.22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, the third one. And it's also a gift. Look at this. In Galatians 5.22, it is described as the gift of the Spirit. But then in John 14.27, Christ says that He is the one who gives the peace. He says, peace I live with you. My peace I give you. Not as the world gives do I give you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. So the same peace that the Holy Spirit gives. Is the same peace that Christ also gives. Talking about that they are one, right? God the Son. God the Holy Spirit. They both give the same peace. The disciples were very familiar, the 11 disciples were very familiar with the fact that real peace only comes from God. That real peace is given only by God. The disciples heard the priest in the temple in Jerusalem every day. They recite what is known as the Aaronic blessing, the priestly, uh, the priestly blessing or the Aaronic benediction. That was a daily practice in the Jerusalem temple that... The disciples and even Jesus heard every day, right? When they went to the temple. And this blessing is, 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 is uh, we see that in the book of Numbers, chapter 6, verses 22 to 26. There, the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron and his sons, this is how you are to bless the Israelites. Say to them, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you. And be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you. And give you peace. The Lord turn his, turn his face toward you. And give you peace. So the disciples were used to hearing this ironic benediction. In the temple every day. And they knew. The disciples knew. That real peace comes only from God. The Lord turn his face toward you. And give you peace. And what we read in Numbers was written in Hebrew, right? What we read in John was written in Greek. So the same word peace now in Numbers is what we all know as shalom, right? The original word for peace in Hebrew is shalom. And we see that in this verse in Numbers, and this word shalom is associated with being safe, well, happy, is associated with favor from God, is associated with rest, with tranquility. The same that the original Greek word I read in John 16.33. Both John 16.33 
and Numbers 6 points toward a peace that only comes from whom? From God. A peace that only comes from being in Christ. So, when Christ told the disciples, my peace I give you, the disciples knew that this peace is only a peace that comes directly from God. So, in a sense, listen to this. This word from Christ to them was another declaration of Christ's divinity. This is there was also a way in which Christ told them one more time that He is God. The kiss, the peace that the that God the Father gives in number six, it's also the peace that God the Son promised in John, and it's also the peace that is given by the Holy Spirit in the book of Galatians, chapter five, verse twenty-two. So Christ is God, and is the one who gives us peace. And we, praise God that we are, we are chosen by Christ, right? We are chosen children of God. And all of us know that nothing in our Christian life comes from our own efforts and works. Nothing comes from our own efforts and works. We cannot have peace. We cannot have peace by our own means. It is the peace of Christ. My peace I give you. It is in me, says Jesus, that in me you may have peace. We can pray for it. We can ask our God in prayer to give it to us. If we don't have it, we pray for it. We pray for we pray with faith, right? We pray with faith, with faith that we will receive it. It is God's will. God, God wants that his children have peace. So when we ask for peace, for his peace, it is a prayer that he approved and he wants for us to ask for to him, right? We are his children. We pray with faith that we will receive it. It is God's will that His children would have His peace. It is God's promise, actually, that His children get His peace. Philippians 4, 6, the Apostle Paul says to the Philippians, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The peace of whom? The peace of God. And only a peace, because that's, that's, that's so real and so true. Is a peace that surpasses all understanding. And only a peace like that, a peace that, that surpasses all understanding, could make the apostles Paul and Silas sing songs while being in prison in that city of Macedonia, Philippi. They were attacked, beaten with rods, and thrown into jail because of preaching Christ. 
Regardless of that, they were joyfully singing. Can you imagine that? This picture really gives us an idea of what a peace that surpasses all understanding looks like. And what about Stephen? He was about to be stoned. And the scripture says in Acts 7, 55, that he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And in verse 59, and they were stoning Stephen. They were stoning him. And while they, while they were doing that, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Stephen had Christ. Stephen had the Holy Spirit in him. And he also had the peace of God in him. And as he was about to be stoned, he gazed into heaven. He gazed into heaven. And I think this can be a type of allegory for us. Where we need to gaze at, stare at, where we need to place our sight when we are in the midst of trials, troubles, and tribulations. Where we need to place our sight, where we need to gaze at. Colossians 3.1.2 says, Colossians 3.1.2 If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Seated at the right, at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Setting our minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. This brings peace. A final word about this point. Those chosen by God have a peace of mind and tranquility due to reconciliation with God. In Christ, we are at peace with God the Father. What Jesus did 2,000 years ago, right, in, the, in, in that farewell discourse, he was arrested that night, and then he was crucified. And that event in history brought the peace of God to the human race, brought the peace of God to those that are chosen and that peace reconciled us with God. There is peace with God. The man that do not have Christ is at war with God. God hates sins. And if somebody doesn't have the blood of Christ covering those sins, is at war with God. But those of us that have the body, that have the blood of Christ in us, that covers our sins, that blood of Jesus makes us in peace with God the Father. So we are at peace with, with God. And that was, that was what the Apostle Paul said in the book of Romans, chapter 5, verse 1. 
Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ reconciled us with the Father. And because of Christ's sacrifice, we are at peace with God. Let's go back to John 16.33 for the third. You may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation. This is our third point. In the world, you will have tribulation. In the world, you will have trouble, as translated by the New International Version of the Bible. In the world, you will have trials and sorrows, as translated by the New Living Translation of the Bible. In the world, you will have tribulations, you will have trouble, you will have trials and sorrows. The Greek word that is translated as tribulation here also means to crush, to press, to compress, to squeeze, and persecution. All of that means that word when we go to the original Greek. And in John 15, 20, think about that. Crush, compress, squeeze, pretty hard things, Right? And Christ told the apostles in John 15, 20, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. That's what Jesus told the apostles. Hallelujah. Nobody suffered more than Christ. Let's have that clear. <laughs> Nobody suffered more than Christ. As the prophet Isaiah said, Christ was despised and rejected. He was a man of sorrows. He was stricken, smitten by God. He was afflicted. He was wounded by our transgressions. He was crushed. Remember that word? In Greek, crush, squid, squeeze, compress. Isaiah uses the same word, but in Hebrew. Jesus was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the punishment that brought us peace. That peace that we enjoy today with God through the blood of Jesus cost the crushing of Jesus crossed the suffering of Jesus, crossed the blood of God the Son. So nobody suffered more than Christ. And on top of that physical suffering, because we, we sometimes only can my focus on the physical suffering of Christ, but I think that the spiritual suffering of Christ was even greater than the physical suffering of Christ. Hallelujah. The spiritual suffering of Christ was a lot greater than the physical suffering of Christ. 
And that's why in, in Matthew 27, 4, he cried, Eli, Eli, lava sabatami. God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We cannot even imagine the pain and suffering of God the Son experiencing for the first time in eternity separation from God the Father. From the first time in eternity, God the Father and God the Son are eternal, eternally co-equal. God the Son is eternally Son of God the Father. And they are one. God in three persons. And there is love in Him. Because love is expressed in the Trinity of God. And there have never in history before been a point in history when God the Son told God the Father, Why have you forsaken me? This was the first and only time in history when that happened. So the crown of the strikes of Jesus... The humiliation of Jesus was nothing compared to that reality in which Christ experienced for his first time in eternity separation from God the Father. And that was because at that time he was the recipient in the cross of God's wrath and judgment for my sins, for your sins. For all the world's sins. For the sins of all the, the people in the world that has been chosen by him. He was the recipient of God's wrath and judgment in the cross. For you and for me. And that causes him to tell God the Father. And that causes God the Father to forsake him that day. So... He had physical suffering, but the spiritual suffering of Christ that day of he was crucified was a lot worse than the physical ones. And again, no, none of us, none of the trials and sufferings and tribulations that we can have in this world compare with the physical suffering that Christ had. Imagine then with the spiritual suffering that he had. So dear brothers and sisters, again, no tribulations or trials that the disciples went through can be compared with that Christ suffered for us. No tribulations or trials that you or me could suffer for Christ in this world can be compared to what he already did for us. As we examine the life of Christ, he told, right, he told the disciples, in the world you will have afflictions. And, and, and as we examine also the life of the disciples, we see that that's what they had after Jesus Christ died. They suffered a lot for Christ. The disciples suffered a lot for Christ. They did. In the world you will have tribulations. Jesus told them. Before they suffered for him. He told them beforehand. 
And we see when we look at the book of Acts, right? We see a lot of that. We see Peter and John and the other apostles being beaten because of preaching Christ in Acts 5, 40. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Also James, the brother of Jesus, he was killed with a sword because of preaching about Jesus in Acts 12.2. The apostle Paul, he was stunned, beaten, and left almost for dead because of preaching Christ in Acts 14.19. Paul and Silas, as we just said, they were in prison after being beaten because of preaching Christ. And many of them had horrendous death for Christ. According to church tradition, the most believed uh, tradition in the church is that the apostle Peter was crucified in an inverted cross, upside down. He said that He was not worthy of dying as his master, and he asked to be crucified upside down, according again to to church tradition. And this this same church tradition said that the apostle Paul was beheaded at the order of the Roman emperor Nero. And we see that in the writings of Eusebius, who was an early church historian. So the apostles in this world, they did have tribulations. As Jesus told them they would. Another source for sorrows in those that truly belongs to Christ is due to sin. The Holy Spirit is working in all of us who are God's children in making us more like Christ. Right? Romans 8, 29. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. In the eyes of God, we are already holy because we are justified by Christ. We are already holy. We have the Christ, the blood of Jesus. And Christ and God the Father sees us through that filter. And we are already holy. At the same time, this is, this, this is what is called in theology positional holiness. We are positionally holy. But also there is something that is called progressive holiness. Both at the same time. At the same time, we are, we, we are a work in progress in becoming like Christ. Those that belong to Christ strive for obedience to his commandments. They want to obey God. They pleased in obeying God. They actually rejoice in obeying God. Read up Psalm 119 and see how the King David, how King David described how obedience is, produces joy in those that are of Christ. Amen. Those that belong to Christ strive for obedience to his commandments. And when they, and, and, and when we do not obey, when we sin, there is a God, there is a godly sorrow that leads us 
into repentance. Unfortunately, we are still not, we do not have glorified body yet. We are safe, we are positionally holy, but we're still in a sinful nature. And because of that, none of us are perfect. We sin, we're sinners. But those that are of God, when they sin, they feel a godly sorrow. They're sad. They feel bad for disobeying God. And that's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7.10. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation. So we see this godly sorrow in the Apostle Peter. Remember that story? We see that godly sorrow. Peter Shortly after Jesus was arrested, Peter denied Christ. Actually, the Bible says that he denied Christ, cursing and swearing. I do not know that man, he says. I do not know that man, says Peter. And after that denial, Peter Peter felt a deep sorrow for his sin. He remembered the word which Jesus had said, Before a rooster cross, you will deny me three times. And the Bible says in Matthew Matthew 26, 75, that he went out and wept bitterly after he sins against Jesus. Something is really wrong. Listen to this. Something is really wrong. When a professed Christian sins without having sorrow for his or her, or her sins. Without fighting against that sin. But instead surrenders into it and persists in sinning without remorse. Something is wrong when that happens. It's not biblical. Because genuine followers of Christ fight against sin with the power of the word of God and the Holy Spirit. Genuine followers pray. They pray for the death of sins in their life. Genuine followers of Christ, they thrive in obeying Christ's teachings and commandments. That's what we want to do. We want to obey. Not because obedience makes us safe. If that would be the case, none of us will be saved because nobody can obey God perfectly. Only Christ did. But because of that salvation by grace, we want to please God in obeying him. And when we do not do that, we have sorrow. And we go to him and say, God, forgive me. Please help me not to do this again. And we grow. in whole. That's a Christian life. Growing in holiness until that day that we will be positional holy and we also will be really, really holy in heaven. When we will have those glorified bodies that, that Christ had. A last source of affliction in the, in, in, is the nature of this world. This is a fallen and broken, a broken world in which physical and spiritual sickness abounds, in which the darkness of sins continues to grow. This society, brothers and sisters, is rejecting God more and more every day. 
the leaders of most countries in this world are op openly endorsing things that God does not approve. Only a few. Those who love God and his law are afflicted by seeing how rejection and disrespect for God's growth in this world. It happens to me, it happens to all God's children. When we see that somebody is offending our father, that brings us sorrow, right? When you see, when I was a child and somebody wanted to fight with me, <laughs> they offended my father trying to provoke me because I don't want anybody to offend my father. It's like that with the children of God. When we see this world offending God, that brings us sorrow and sadness. We want everybody to respect this great God that created everything and is so grateful and do not deserve anybody offense. A true children of God feel sorrow for the things that are happening in this world. We rejoice when the leaders do good things that God loves. We suffer when the leaders endorse and make laws and normalizes the things that God hates. Sin. At the same time, because all of that is true, there is tribulations. In the world you will have tribulations that can be for several reasons, as I have just said. But we should not forget that God is a sovereign God. God is a sovereign God. God is sovereign in the tribulations that Christ's disciples suffered. It was not a surprise for God that Peter was beheaded or that, sorry, that Paul was beheaded or that Peter died in an inverted cross or that Stephen was stoned or that many people were burned or that many people were given to lions to be eaten by them, by the lions. God was not surprised. He's sovereign. God is a sovereign in the tribulations that Christ's disciples suffered. God is also sovereign in the trials, afflictions, and tribulations that you or me could have in this world. Romans 8.28 And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. If you notice here, it says all things. It doesn't say all good things. It doesn't say all bad things. It doesn't say, well, things that are, all things works together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. It also includes the trials. It also includes the tribulations. It also includes the physical sickness in this world. And that's when faith comes. That's when belief comes. Even though we do not understand why things happen to us sometimes, faith sometimes do not have to understand. It's good when we understand, but if we do not understand, we still have faith. Job did never understand why things happened to him. And he cried to God and asked for answers. You know what? 
He never had the answer. But he recognized that God is sovereign and that he is dust as we are all dust. Dear brothers and sisters, God's purpose for us is to be more and more like Christ. And I am sure that even though we cannot understand at times why things happen to us, God does use the trials and tribulations of his children for his perfect purpose. He is a sovereign God. Let's go back to John 16.33 for the fourth and last point I want to make today. I have said the things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will, you will have tribulations, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Take courage, according to the New American Standard Version of the Bible. Take courage. I have overcome the world. The original Greek word used here, translated as take courage, also signifies showing boldness and inner confidence. Inner confidence. Christ told the disciples to take courage, an invitation to be bold when trouble comes. And the basis for this courage was placed was placing their confidence and trust in Christ. Their boldness and confidence comes from looking at Jesus. That's where it comes from. The boldness of the disciples, the courage of the disciples, comes from looking at Jesus. Set your minds on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. Do you remember when Jesus walked on water? The disciples initially thought that it was like a ghost right in the middle. It was dark. And when Jesus said, it is me, Peter said to him, if it is you, tell me to come to you. And I, for me to walk in water too. <laughs> Christ told Peter, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sing, he cried out, Lord, save me. You see, as long as Peter was looking at Jesus, with his sight and trust set on Jesus, he was walking on the water. When he has his eye on Jesus, he actually was walking on the water. But when he was looking at Jesus, he has the courage of the faith to do what Jesus told him to do. That in that case was to walk on the water. He obeyed Jesus. But once he deviated his sight and mindset from Jesus and instead placed his sight and mindset in the wind, then he started to sing. When he started to sing, he stopped looking at Jesus and he instead looked at the wind and the storm, right? And then courage left and faith left and he started to sing. It is like this with us. Sometimes our trials get more difficult when we focus our sight and mindset away from Christ. The source of our courage and our boldness in the middle of storms and trials should always be Jesus. Looking at him, having our mindset placed in him, trusting him. This gives us strength and comfort to withstand tribulation. And look what Paul says in Romans 8.18, 8, 
For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. The sufferings of these present times are not worthy compared with the things that are coming for us. So brothers and sisters, when we think in the glory that awaits us, the gift of salvation by Christ, what Christ had endured to save us, then a strength, comfort, and hope comes into us with Christ, with this Christ-centered perspective. To finish, I just want to say this that I read from this famous preacher, D.L. Moody, and before we go to briefly applications, he said about this woman that was living like in the fifth floor of an apartment, and, 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 and there was a lady that came to visit that woman with a friend that was a wealthy, wealthy friend. And this woman was sick, bedridden, and there was no elevators. As, as, they, was, as they were walking up, everything was like filthy, and, and, and the wealthy woman didn't like it. But as they go each step, the other woman, the other woman would, would say to the healthy woman, it is better higher up. And then when they go to the next level, it is better higher up. And then when they go to the next level, it's still very ugly and filthy. It is better higher up. And then when they reach the, the, the level five, where the saint of God was there in the bed with a joyful, smiley face. And then the wealthy woman also looked at the apartment and says, well, it, it must be very difficult for you to live here. But she was happy because she has her mind place in Jesus, and she said, it is better higher up. And it is, it is true, it is better higher up. <laughs> With the eye of, of faith fixed on the eternal, she found the secret of true satisfaction, satisfaction and contentment in Jesus. And because of that hope, everything that she lived for, it was based on that reality that it is better higher up. So, are you what are the trials, troubles, and tribulations that you are going through? I don't know what it is. All of us have. But whatever it is, remembers the promises that Jesus tells us in John 16:33. Would you believe what Jesus said? Would you? Many times this is easier said than done, and many, mainly when I am not going the trials that you're going through, and you are not going the trial that I'm going through. But we we need to believe the promises of Jesus. If you are in Christ, he gives you of his peace. I encourage you to believe that. We need to believe that. We need to have faith in that. We need to pray for those words to be truth in our lives. It is because of Jesus' victory and our union with Christ that we also will be victorious in him. Remember, dear brothers and sisters, it is better higher up. And I would add that it is not actually better. It is perfect higher up. It is better higher up. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your Holy Spirit indwelling in us. Please give us more faith to believe what you have said in your word. Thank you for Christ in us. Help us to have our hope 
in you, our mind in you. And whatever trials, troubles, or tribulations that we're going through, help us to always remember that it is better higher up. It is perfect higher up. In the precious name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Our closing hymn is number 629. What a friend we have in Jesus and reminds us uh, of Christ's provision for us. Uh, and the fact that he is with us bearing every sorrow. Number 629. Please stand. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen.